Well, good evening, everyone. Oh, you that's great. Um, I'm starting to feel like I'm in the company of old friends now, so that's just really fabulous. Um, thank you for coming. I'm Lisa German. I'm the university librarian and dean of libraries. And it seems like we are in the uh, middle of the center of the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle metaverse tonight. <laughs> and what an interesting place that's going to turn out to be. Tonight's event features a conversation between two collectors and two experts of Sherlock Holmes. Um, the, our very own Dick Sweam, who is the, on the board of the Friends of the Libraries and who soon will be on the board of the, can I say that? The um, Friends of the Anderson Horticulture Library. Um, so if I'm gonna just put in a plug for that library since that's in our, sort of our, our world too. If you haven't been out to the Arboretum, I invite you all to go and see that wonderful library that's out there. Um, and I'd really like to say thank you to both Dick and to Glenn. And before we begin this evening's program, however, uh, let's acknowledge the peoples on whose ancestral lands we gather. The University of Minnesota is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It's important to acknowledge the peoples on whose land we live, learn, and work as we seek to strengthen and improve our relations with tribal nations. We also acknowledge words are not enough, that we must ensure that this institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. So now, I am pleased as punch to introduce um, someone you all know, our curator of our Sherlock Holmes collection, Tim Johnson. Thank you, Lisa. Um, good evening, and thank you for coming out on a very Moriarty-esque <laughs> Minnesota winter night. Um, I'm delighted to uh, introduce our conversants uh, for the evening, and I'm gonna do so quickly uh, so that we can enjoy the fruits of their conversation. Glenn Maranker is well known in the computer industry, <clears throat> computer, <laughs> Moriarty at it again, um, in the computer industry, especially for his work with Steve Jobs at, at Next and later at Apple. His networks uh, also extend to the University of Virginia's Rare Book School, the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, the Baker Street Irregulars Trust, the American Foundation for the Toronto Public Library, the Russell Engelman Rheumatology Research Center at the University of California, San Francisco, and the National Cryptologic Museum in Annapolis Junction, Maryland. Richard Sviam, AKA Dick, like Glenn, is well known in the healthcare community, especially for his work with young allergy patients through Park Nicollet Clinics, the American Lung Association and its leadership board and Camp Super Funds Super Kids program, the University of Minnesota Medical School as a clinical professor in pediatrics and medicine, the National Consortium on Children's Asthma Camps, 
and the longtime president of the Friends of the Sherlock Holmes Collections here at the university, also the board of the Ampersand Club, and most recently, as you just heard, uh, now president of the Friends of the Anderson Horticultural Library. Both Glenn and Dick are longtime collectors and lovers of the written and printed word. Members of the Grolier Club, invested members of the Baker Street Irregulars, well-versed in the bibliography of Sherlock Holmes and in the joys of interacting with Sherlockians around the world. Their paths have crossed many times in many venues and we're delighted to have them both here this evening. Following our, their conversation, I invite you to join them in a time of refreshment and an opportunity to view the truly stellar Sherlock Holmes in 221, 221 objects, an exhibition from the collection of Glenn S. Maranker. Now please, on a cold winter night, join me in welcoming Glenn and Dick in what promises to be an interesting conversation with collectors. Well, um, thanks, uh, Lisa and Tim, for the kind introduction. I want to uh, especially here thank Glenn for the uh, exhibiting and sharing his collection with Minnesota. I know you missed the opening of the exhibit the other night, and Kathy was very eloquent. But is there anything that you wanted to tell us before we get started? Well, I, I, my suspicion is that Kathy very nicely and adequately covered it, but I would like to share a, a small story with you about my collecting and collections. Uh, I had just begun, I was, I was a grad student. I had just begun collecting. Uh, I had pretty much decided that I, I was only, only even contemplated collecting Sherlock. So, um, and I'd pretty much made up my mind that I would collect writings about the writings, that um, these rarefied things called first editions and so forth would uh, for o always be out of reach, both uh, in reality and both financially. Uh, so I, I started collecting writings about the writings, and my collection, I don't, my collection was very small at this point. You know, one shelf, foot and a half. But two of the books that I had were uh, Cultivating Sherlock Holmes and Sherlock Holmes' Master Detective, distinguished Norwegian explorers. And I don't remember how, but I found out that uh, uh, McDiarmid was still with us. And I uh, packed up those two books, and I mailed them to him, and he inscribed them and returned them. So two of the very first books in my collection are inscribed to me, uh, McDermott books. That's pretty cool. Every item on display, all 221 objects, has a story, a backstory, and we're going to save some of that for the gallery tour which uh, we're gonna have uh, on April 20th, mark your calendars. And we're gonna try to focus our conversation on your collecting Sherlockiana. Uh, I once gave a talk to the Copper Beaches and uh, the, I, my talk was there's four questions that every collector must answer. 
Why do you collect? Why do you collect Sherlock Holmes? Have you read all the books? And what are you going to do with your collection when you're gone? Those are the four questions. Uh, so the first question uh, about uh, why do you collect? W were you a born collector as a boy? Did you have stamps, coins, baseball cards, comic books? Yes, I was, I was a collector as a boy. Um, I had, uh, let's see, I had a, a mineral collection. Uh, did not have a stamp collection. Uh, baseball cards. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. My mineral collection and my baseball card. But certainly at that age, uh, at least I was not a, uh, e even for a 10, 15 year old, was not a serious collector. That is, I didn't, it was a, a little side activity. I didn't become interested in uh, collecting uh, until, uh, in, in any, anything approaching a serious way till I was in grad school. And, uh, it all started, uh, one Saturday I was at home working away on my thesis and no doubt in a really foul mood. And, uh, Kathy, my wife, uh, went out for a walk and she comes back and she says, I got you a present to cheer you up. And she hands me this book. It was uh, an American first edition of the case book of Sherlock Holmes, the last of the collected Sherlock Holmes short stories. And I uh, looked at the book and a, a, a light bulb went off. I, I really did say, you mean you don't have to be J.P. Morgan to collect books? Just hadn't occurred to me. And we, uh, I queried her, and, and she had stumbled upon a small antiquarian book uh, show a few blocks away in the basement of the Harvard Gutman Library, the education library, and I said, well, is it open tomorrow? I want to go. <laughs> and as many of you know, um, book fairs are typically open Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and so we went, and uh, I was hooked, captivated, done for at that moment. Let's back up before we get to that book fair. When do you think you became a Sherlockian? Are you a Sherlockian? Oh, most assuredly. And you read the stories when you were 12? Well, I'd re I, I, had read the, I had read the stories when I was a child. Uh, but did, did you think of yourself as Sherlock Holmes? I mean, oh, are absolutely. you the smartest guy in the room? <laughs> that, that mental disorder didn't set in until around grad school days, and I, uh, and, and I'm cured, but uh, or I think I'm cured. Uh, no, I, I had I had read the stories as a boy, and um, uh, and I enjoyed them very much, but they didn't hadn't assumed uh, any particular stature in my my attention, my esteem. Uh, but when I, when I was a, uh, an undergrad, uh, my uh, roommate comes back one evening. I'm in a, I'm in a funk. Uh, probably I'd been turned down for a date or thought I blew a test, you know, some cosmic undergraduate event like that. And he grabs this big fat book and he throws it at me and he says, read these, it'll cheer you up. And the book was the uh, complete stories of Sherlock Holmes. 
And I started reading them again and was absolutely captivated by the characters, the, you know, Victorian London. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I started reading them avidly and I got finally through the bulk of the book and I said to myself, all of a sudden, wait a second, I haven't read this particular story. Evidently, I had put, put it down when I was a little boy with, you know, three or four stories remaining. And I put the book away because I didn't want there to be no more Sherlock Holmes stories. And in fact, didn't read to the very end of the book, oh, I don't know, for another year or two. Uh, so, I could, so I could save those stories. But what I did find out uh, by chance encounters uh, that there were uh, like-minded folks in the world, that they were great fun, very interesting, uh, got together periodically. Uh, ate very well, drank to excess as a general rule. Not well, some, many of them. And so I've, I fell in with this bad lot. That's when I became a Sherlockian. It, and that was when you were still an undergraduate? I'm still an undergraduate, so, yeah. And uh, so when you started collecting Sherlockiana, you had that writings on the writings before Kathy came home with the case book? No, I had nothing. You had nothing? No, I had, I had the two-volume Doubleday. So literally, that is it. Did did you follow a list? Did you take advice from others? Is uh, that story go on that you met other? Oh, I was fortunate uh, in that uh, that uh, book fair. The uh, we went up to the card table of the dealer where Kathy got that book, and it was this fellow named Peter Stern. Who I think, yes, I see an awful lot of. <laughs> And there was also a fellow at having a chat with Peter at that, and a fellow named Dan Poznanski. <laughs> so from the absolute very beginning, uh, I met uh, Dan and uh, Peter. And uh, to say that uh, a substantial part of my education came from these two gentlemen, particularly Dan, it would be a horrible understatement. In fact, let me, may I tell you another story? Um, uh, a couple of weeks later, I had been, you know, uh, I, 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 Dan, even in the quick conversation we had at that book fair, had described the uh, uh, places I needed to visit to find Sherlockian treasures. And so I had established this uh, orbit, which I went on many Saturdays, uh, around three or four or five of the antiquarian bookstores in Boston and Cambridge. And I was very proud of the books I had assembled. As I said, they were. And I happened to bump into Dan at, at, at Harvard Square, and I said, Dan, you've got to come over and see my collection. I'm, I think I'm doing really well. So we went, we went back to, my, to Kathy, my place, and I showed him the books, and he said, Glenny, <laughs> uh, you know, I've got to, I have an appointment, I've got to go, but let's meet next weekend. I said, fine, Saturday is good. He says, okay. And Poznanski came over to my place the following Saturday with four boxes of books. <laughs> and he, bring, he we, we hauled them up to my place, and he says, these are the basic books that any Sherlockian collector needs. And he went through them in great detail explaining why, why they were important, what, they, what in, term, in, the, in the context of a, of a collection they represented. And 
of course, that's an extraordinary experience. But I I have found that uh, at least the collectors in my uh, area are very generous with their time and knowledge. I mean, this <laughs> Dan's generosity is is spectacular. But I found many of these, so I I learned from other collectors. Do Do you have any other people that you consider mentors in your Sherlockian collecting? Oh, for sure. Uh, there was a fellow named Marv Epstein. He uh, passed away quite some time ago. Uh, he was an extraordinary collector. He had uh, uh, an, an absolutely uh, uh, voracious curiosity, uh, encyclopedic memory. Was he a computer guy? He, he was a mathematician. He was a mathematician at Bell Labs. Uh, and... Uh, Actually, through that connection, he also, besides uh, uh, unbounded energy and unbounded curiosity, he had a secret weapon. Uh, yeah, I think most, not you two, but most of you are old enough to remember when telephone calls cost money. Did Particularly, he have a Watts line he from had, Bell Labs? He had a Watts line. And he burned up that telephone calling, you know, dealers and collectors. And uh, he had managed to assemble a, 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 a fairly impressive uh, detective fiction collection, but a spectacular uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes collection. And in particular, he discovered any number of, uh, you know, things of unknown bibliographic importance. Is there anyone you consider your rival in collecting Sherlockiana? Well, certainly a reasonable question. I don't consider collecting a, a, a competitive sport. Um, you know, it's 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 certainly the case. There are any number of uh, any number of times, places, occasions where there'll be collect collectors I know well, and we're both clearly interested in the same object. But it's it's I I I don't feel I don't feel competitive. So you've said before though that part of collecting is the passion and the curiosity uh, that drives you. But tell me more about the rewards of sharing. You're saying that there's a cooperative element. Oh, I I think so. I think uh, I I mean I I know in in, uh, in principle there are collectors who you know I don't know sit in there. Uh, offices or their libraries and chort look at their stuff and chortle about it and that's and that's all they do. I don't understand that kind of collecting. I think that the rewards of sharing uh, uh, what you've what you've learned, uh, the uh, uh, interesting uh, things about the books that comprise your collection, uh, are far deeper, far richer, far more meaningful. If you share them, um, and and there are many ways to share. I from time to time give you know lecture on collecting or collection, um, and uh, as as an example, and I just I, I don't understand collectors that that don't actively do that. You've also said that you you're a custodian of these objects. Well, these books are not ours forever. You know, sometime they're not going to be mine anymore. Uh, what I'm going to do with them is another matter, whether I find a new home for the uh, library l largely intact or 
uh, I put them up for sale and they uh, enrich other, you know, a new uh, generation of collectors. But they're not mine forever. And so as a custodian, I have obligations. And certainly the most basic is to take good care of them. Uh, but I think an, another custodial, and I, 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 I don't like using this phrase because it's, 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 it's a joy, but another, another custodial obligation is to make them available. So, you know, people are more than welcome to visit me. I've had any number of folks that have come and spent a good deal of time. Uh, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, Andrew Lysette. Uh, he published uh, uh, the most comprehensive, the best, I think the best researched biography of Conan Doyle, Kathy, five, six years ago now, seven years, something like that. Oh, it's more than 10. 10, 10 okay, I lose track of time. 10 years ago. And uh, Andrew got in touch with me, and we had him as a, as a house guest for about a week. And man, oh man, he got up every morning at a decent hour, went into my libraries, and I would stick my head in and say, well, can I help you find something? Want to go out for a second? No, 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 no. And then at 5, 6 in the evening, he'd knock off, and uh, we would have a very pleasant evening sipping whiskey. Uh, and measure of generosity, and an yet another measure of generosity, is a few years after that, uh, my older daughter did a year abroad in uh, London, and she's a wonderful lady, and she uh, got in touch with Lysette, and Lysette and his partner had her over for dinner a handful of times. And I can verify that uh, you're generous with your collection. You allowed me to see an unpublished poem that uh, Doyle had written that we used for ACD at 35. But let's go back to your book collecting career. I, I'm interested in this. You, you talked about how early in your career you were a book hunter and you made the rounds. You went into actual bookstores in search of treasure. Do you still go into bookstores? Are you now the hunted by the booksellers? <laughs> do you buy books at fairs, online, auctions? Where do you get your material? I, well, I certainly still go to bookstores. If I'm uh, in a new city uh, or, new or a city which I'm in infrequently, I do my best to make extra time to prowl their shops. Um, but I have, I, uh, have and continue to use every mechanism I can think of to turn up materials. Uh, one that may, may be unusual to many of you folks is uh, used furniture stores. They, some of them buy these uh, bookcases or wardrobes or something and the previous owner kept books in them and didn't bother emptying out the furniture. Uh, and uh, I, I have, it, it, it has not been paying off like it did 20 year, 30 years ago, but I've gotten more than a few books from uh, uh, used bookstores. Now, I just use that as an example of it's not possible to cast your net too wide. Terry Ballinger told the Baker Street Irregulars that if you buy a book online, that's not book collecting, that's shopping. Yes. Do you, do you believe that? Well, actually, uh, I was at a talk by Terry Ballinger a gazillion years ago, and he, and he used that phrase, and it quite, it quite resonated. My background is high tech, and uh, for the first 
good chunk of time, I don't remember how long, three, four, five, eight years, I did not use the internet consciously. Uh, uh, books and book hunting were a, a different world. It was a, a place for me to uh, be someplace else than uh, working on computers and with computers. I finally decided I was cutting off my nose despite my face and have, have, have given in, and I, I use it avidly, voraciously. Uh, my experience, though, is uh, Terry, who's modified his position a little bit, uh, is uh, it's a very poor experience compared to, uh, uh, for example, going to bookstores or going to auctions. Uh, it's rare you will learn anything. You can learn things on the web if you do some research, but the, the, the mere act of walking into a shop, chatting with uh, the customers or the owner of the shop, uh, you, you, you learn things. And I certainly miss the sociability. Uh, it's not gone, but I do it a, a heck of a lot less. You know, when I, when I was starting out, when I was in grad school, that was a fairly regular Saturday morning uh, exercise to go around to these bookstores. And uh, the, so I wouldn't, I, I don't think it's fair to call it shopping. Uh, so um, you said you, uh, you tried to keep the book collecting and the computers separate, but I'm interesting. I've heard that you have a process that when you buy a book, it goes through some entry and that you have an online database. Is that true? Well, yes, I do. <laughs> but, you know, it is a tool, and my online database is, just, is, is, is a database I wrote myself, is a... Uh, uh, it, it is indistinguishable except that it lives in, on the hard drive and stuff like that than index cards. Same kind of information, same organization. Um, but do you study your, the objects you bring into your collection? I mean, you... Oh, for you, sure. You just don't put them on the shelf. Oh, no, 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 for sure. Um, uh, the, uh, one of the delights... In uh, books in general, whether you collect or not, is uh, the uh, information, the story that the books have other than what's on the text block. Uh, Michael Suarez of the uh, Rare Book School call, uh, refers to this as reading the whole book. And uh, for me, the... Uh, the things that really look if you pick pick up a copy doesn't matter what it is if it's an early pirate or a first edition or first edition second state or whatever give or take typographical errors the story is the same as you can download now free for nothing onto your reader or print out on paper if you prefer to read on your screen it's not the story that makes the book fascinating it's why it was printed, it's how it was printed, it's how it was written, uh, is what audience was it intended for, uh, is uh, where, where has the book been particularly successful, does, does the story itself have, if you'll pardon the expression, legs above and beyond it, the movies, 
Are there radio programs that use it for, as a source of material? These are the things that I find most interesting. If the Sherlock Holmes in 221 objects is less than 3% of your collection, what are we missing? Well, let me, let me, maybe I'll answer that in a sort of backwards way. My, my collection has six or 7,000 items in it. Um, and the, the reason I'm not entirely sure is actually twofold. As I said, it's not a, a, a database. It's sort of like index cards. So, for example, there's one entry for uh, the Baker Street Journal, 1946 to current, which was a quarterly. So that, that one entry is, you know, 200-plus items. The other is uh, uh, an area I'm extremely fond of, of collect, uh, collecting are pirated editions. And um, I have not, uh, w with the exception of the handful of pirates that have some bibliographic importance, I have not cataloged any of them. Uh, and there are probably 12 or 1,300 of those. Uh, so uh, that's why I don't know the exact number. When I've cataloged all my pirates, then I will know precisely how many items are. Well, no, then I won't know because they're the occasional entry, which represents 200 items, but I'll know more precisely. So the areas that are not here is when I assembled the collection, uh, the, the exhibition, Kathy and I discussed it, and uh, uh, two things uh, we, want, we wanted, uh, two characteristics we wanted in the uh, uh, exhibit one was that there'd be a lot of people who were going to come and view the exhibit who weren't Sherlockians. So there were certain things which were just as, as exciting or whatever to a Sherlockian were just not appropriate. So, for example, there are no writings about the writings in the exhibition. So there's a whole broad area, a whole class. Similarly, uh, in the, uh, I uh, made queries as to the uh, amount of space there was. And it became apparent that something like 200 items uh, would be all that could be accommodated. And then, of course, I said, well, Holmes and Watson lived at 221 Baker Street, so there'll be 220. I even contemplated cutting a book in half so that it could be 220, but I didn't. So it's, 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 not, it's just 221 items. And... Um, and then, the, and then the last consider or a last consideration is there were stories that we wanted to tell. That is a story uh, of, uh, for example, of uh, Conan Doyle's transformation from a failing physician to a budding, uh, sought-after author. And the big transition is 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 around 1890. And you see some of the things. You see, for example, uh, uh, some letters that talk about how uh, J.M. Stoddard, who was the editor at that point of Lippincott's, an American magazine, uh, they decided that they wanted to publish their magazine in London as well for that English-speaking audience. He made a trip to uh, Stoddard, that is, made a trip to London to do some business negotiations and also to, uh, to make contact with uh, authors who would be sources for the material that would fill the magazine. 
And one evening, uh, uh, he took two young authors out to dinner at the Langham Hotel. One of them was Arthur Conan Doyle, and the other was a fellow named Oscar Wilde. And uh, they both commissioned, uh, excuse me, Stoddard commissioned a piece from both of them. Conan Doyle wrote uh, a sign of four in like uh, eight, ten weeks after dinner. And 15, 16 months later, Oscar Wilde delivered this, uh, what the heck was it called? Pictures of Dorian Gray. Uh, and uh, uh, Doyle refers to this as a golden evening and was uh, central in his thinking of giving up on being a, a practicing physician. There is said to be the Kathy challenge, which is, how will the desired object enhance your collection? When did you start following the Kathy challenge? And well, has it helped you improve your collection or avoid any pitfalls? Well, I, I'd like to slightly rephrase that, if I may. <laughs> Kathy has been consistently and enthusiastically supportive of, uh, of my collection. Uh, and uh, very, you know, very enthusiastic. And um, some small number of years ago, things did change. But the way they changed is when I'm particularly excited about something, she just asks, how will this improve your collection? So, which, by the way, it was unusual. There's a, a, uh, a slightly inappropriate joke in the uh, book-selling world that the uh, wife is the natural enemy of the book dealer. But it's not the case in this particular household. And I have to say, and I think she figured this out kind of instantly, I quickly cottoned on she was going to ask me that question. So I usually prepare an answer before I... <laughs> Share, share with her that I'm going to go after a, a new particular item. This exhibit is single author, Arthur Conan Doyle, single subject, only his Sherlock Holmes writings. You, you follow the character Sherlock Holmes onto the stage, and I know you're interested in some of the popular culture because I've heard a Grow Your Lecture where you talked about uh, portrayals of Sherlock Holmes in advertising. But do you read pastiches? Not very much. Um, and I have to say, with a few exceptions, and I'll tell you which ones right in a minute, uh, I, I, I find the early pastiches, a good number of them are, are clever and entertaining. Uh, but uh, if I, I, I actually didn't check prior to come in, but if you, if you were to go on Amazon and look at the number of Sherlockian pastiches available right now in print, there's hundreds of them. Hundreds. I have five thousand in my collection. No, no, I mean right now. No, no, I mean right now that haven't gone that that are are waiting for that are in print, ready to buy right now. And this has been going on for 150 years, 140 years. So the um, uh, but there are some, you know, for example, I think Nick Meyer's stuff is excellent. Going back a little earlier, I think the uh, August Derleth uh, Solar Ponds are are quite good. Uh, but by by and large, uh, and 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 then there are individual individual stories here and there. But by and large, I don't I don't read pastiches. 
Do you collect them? Do you have Bonnie McBird's run? Do you have well, Laurie King's run? Do you have? I, as I said, there are a few exceptions. I do collect pastiches, and I can't. Uh, I, I can. I can only give you one or two of the rules that I that I use. Uh, first and foremost, I have I, ha I have to like the author or have liked one of their stories. This seems to, by and large, shut off the pastiches I collect in. 1930-1940. But there are a couple of contemporary writers like uh, Laurie King, like Bonnie McBird, and I, I, do, I do have their books. Uh, I, I, but I, yes, and they are in my collection and they are in my library, but I think them less so as collectibles than books I like to read. You're interested in the minutiae of bibliography and have discovered several important details about publications. What makes the bibliography interesting to you? Tell us more about your fascination with pirates. Are you still hunting with the 1300 you have at home? Are you still looking for more? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, I, 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 I am absolutely confident that there are plenty more out there. Uh, and, and I don't, I, I, I don't in spite of the, the impressive number, uh, there are no there are no duplicates. I, I mean, I may have made a mistake or two, um, and it, the minutia will come come forward in a second. The um, uh, when I say not duplicate, if the color of the binding is different, it's not a duplicate. Something that's pretty common in pirated editions is they have some sort of end matter. In some cases, there'll be a story, a whole story unheralded on the title of the book, unheralded in the table of contents, but there's a, you know, besides the um, uh, uh, headline title, you know, for example, sign of four, there'll be a story or two. Often that, that varies from a, a copy to copy. If they're different, they're different books. Uh, many pirates have uh, advertisements, and the advertisements may be different. So in some regard, they're all they're all different, and I'm quite confident there are more that I have that that I have yet to find. Uh, now, why is this important? Well, I mean, in the in the cosmic sense, no, but it does it it can tell you a great deal about a book. It can it can tell you, for example, it may tell you uh, why when it was printed. The advertisements are often very helpful because among I, one of the things I have done in, with several of the books is I've looked up to see the same to see the advertisements with the same graphics that appeared in local newspapers. Now this is hardly proof, but I assume these guys were cheap. That if they paid for the art, they used it again, and so I, I assume that the uh, I deduce that the uh, uh, print date was approximately that of the advertisement in the local newspaper. Just that, that's just A, for instance. Um, uh, it's, not quite ad it's not quite advertising, but uh, one of the books here is a uh, sign of four, which was uh, uh, a pirated, pirated sign of four, which was inscribed by Arthur Conan Doyle very cordially. And, and as you would guess, if you don't know, uh, he had a very uh, uh, poor opinion of pirate publishers. I mean, the pirate publishers published his stories, 
didn't pay him a cent. The books themselves are, by and large, pretty shabby. So it's um, so there was no, nothing to like. But he inscribed this book. Well, I needed to. I, I wanted. Oh, oh, and also in this book on the end paper uh, is the ownership signature uh, of the of the person it was inscribed to, a guy named Harlow N. Higginbotham. Well, who the hell is Harlow N. Higginbotham? It turns out. Harlow and Higginbotham was a big shot in Chicago in the l- l- latter part of the 19th century. And, excuse me, 20, uh, yeah, 19th century. And uh, by big shot, I mean he was one of the founders of the Marshall Field Department Store. Uh, he was one of the founders of uh, the Field Museum. I think at the, at the relevant time, I think he was president of the Field Museum. Uh, he was a well-known and beloved philanthropist food, clothing, and so forth. He was also the president of the uh, 1893 Columbian Exposition. World's Fair celebrate the 100th birthday of the discovery of the United States, of, of, of America. And um, I found out that uh, one of his privileges as president was the uh, admissions tickets had his signature on it. So I get on eBay, and I buy myself a, an admission ticket to the 1893 Columbian Exit, which are plentiful, by the way, and uh, compare the signatures. So that's how I verified the signature. I think, so the, the, the chasing down, and so why is the minutia important? Well, I wanted to be absolutely sure that this book had been in Chicago and that the uh, uh, among the things I used to, esta- to satisfy myself that the signatures were real, not forgeries, was that I looked up and Higginbotham, in fact, hosted Conan Doyle's speech in Chicago on October 12th, 1895. Four. The... Uh most incredible part of your collection on display is the holographic manuscript material. And I know you have a special interest in the manuscript material. Does it make you feel closer to the author? Do you understand him better? What's the difference between facsimile and the real thing? Well, uh, certainly uh, holding and reading a manuscript just magics you off even more deeply than uh, uh, ink on paper, uh, fountain pen ink on, even though he even though he wrote on either fool's cap or exercise books, so not particularly distinguished paper, you just really feel you're hunched over his shoulder. You can see the you can see the corrections. Some of the corrections, uh, Conan Doyle had a had a, a, a method of work, a style of work which did not change. Uh, for, well, first of all, he worked longhand up to his death. Uh, there was a change, kind of in that of that flavor around 190 small. He would send his uh, manuscripts out to a typing service, and it was the resulting typescript that went to the publisher. But he worked longhand throughout his life. The other thing that uh, gives you some uh, uh, special insight and, and brings you even closer to the author is as he was writing, if he thought of a change, so for example, he would change uh, character names, you know, midstream. He would go back earlier in the manuscript and correct the manuscript in pen. 
And by and large, there are exceptions. By and large, those that would describe almost all the changes he made in his manuscripts. He did make a pass through his manuscripts after he finished writing them. But those corrections he invariably made in pencil. So you can you can see the author, you can feel, you can smell, you can taste the author bringing the story into existence, and and changes he's making when you have the uh, manuscript. Now the facsimiles, um, I th I think they offer many of the same. I don't have the same emotional reaction to a facsimile as I do to uh, the actual manuscript. But certainly in an intellectual sense, absolutely. In fact, most facsimiles uh, are accompanied by uh, very helpful scholarly writings about the story, about the time it, that Conan Doyle was writing, so whatever. And so are uh, uh, in incredibly helpful. Speaking of Sherlockian scholarship, I want before we open this up to question and answers, I want to point out that I consider Glenn not just a collector, but a Sherlockian scholar of great renown. He's <laughs> done the, uh, you, you did an article about the pamphlet house and Edgar Smith in 91 with John Lellenberg's BSI history series. Yes. You did a uh, Christmas annual, right? Oh, yes. That was, uh, you did, uh, I've, saw it, I've seen your exhibits around, but uh, this one, uh, Trenches, is a part of your collection that we haven't mentioned at all. Right. Uh, and, uh, one of the manuscripts that you have is actually, um, on display, I believe the black Peter's black here black Peter manuscript. and Glenn edited the BSI, uh, volume that, that went along with that, that had the facsimile in there. So I feel like I own the black Peter, but not quite like your black Peter. And of course, what I now consider your magnus opus, the catalog that goes with this collection. And I think Tim said that we do not have it on sale at this time like we did for the, um, the opening, but they will be here on the 20th, I believe. And this, this is an incredible book uh, that I value in my collection. I believe this is Tim's copy, but... Um, it is also available online, yes, but the book is so charming, and it's... Well, you can, uh, I believe you can order the book from Amazon. Ah, online. Online. <laughs> online. So, so my question to you is now... now you can shop for it. Now, now that you've done this, what's next? Is, are we done? Or is oh, no, we're not done. I, ha I have, I have uh, two projects, which are reasonable... Re one is quite far along, one is barely along, uh, that uh, with uh, producing this catalog and the pandemic have been delayed, that's my excuse, I'm sticking to it. But one of them is um, actually as part of the exhibit, there is a uh, holograph speech that uh, Conan Doyle gave in uh, 1896 uh, to the Authors Club in uh, London. Uh, and uh, the, title, the title of the speech is um, The Craft of uh, Writing, or The Craft of... No, but he refers to it... He, he, he refers to it in his autobiography as the work of storytelling. And it's, it's, it's a, you know, a wonderful, wonderful speech, uh, which he shared with his fellow authors, 
uh, uh, where he talks about the uh, difficulties of uh, getting published of, of, and what constitutes a, uh, uh, what makes a book worth, what makes a story worth embodying as a book. And uh, it's, it's very self-effacing and very illuminating. For example, uh, uh, early on in the speech, he, he says, uh, I would like to say that I, was, uh, uh, I went into the field of letters by a cheering ambition, but I fear it's more correct to say I was driven in by a howling creditor. And uh, a little later on in the speech, about roughly mid-speech, he says, I have been much upbraided for, uh, he says, the, the chairman has asked me to talk about this little group of tales, uh, Sherlock Holmes, which I have uh, written. And I have been much upbraided for putting that fellow to death, but I maintain it wasn't murder, but uh, uh, homicide and self-defense, for if I hadn't killed him, he would have killed me. So. There, so are you going to do a book oh, about Oh, I'm the... sorry. So I'm going to put... <laughs> I got distracted by my own story. So uh, uh, I am going to produce a, a facsimile of that speech uh, and, and a goodly number of uh, uh, the associated, uh, of associated essays with it because uh, it was a very, very interesting... It's a very interesting time in Conan Doyle's life. Um, by any measure, he had, quote, made it. He hadn't quite internalized it yet by 1896. You see in his writings, he was not, he was not secure of his talent. He was not, secu he was not secure of his financial position, uh, which, you know, with the benefit of looking back 100 years hence, he was, he was set for life. Uh, but he was, hadn't quite come to terms with that. Very, very, so stay tuned. We look forward to that. And then the other is um, I have a, a number of uh, Conan Doyle's notebooks. Um, uh, most notable is, like many, like many Victorians, Edwardians, he, he, he kept notebooks, multiple notebooks. And there was a set of four of them that uh, he kept while he was living in uh, Norwood. And uh, they're very cleverly referred to as the Norwood Notebooks. <laughs> uh, one of these notebooks on the back side of the pages, uh, which I hadn't looked at in, in great detail until I started pulling together the uh, uh, exhibition, is in fact clearly a uh, version of the play that he wrote, Sherlock Holmes. See, the William Gillette, the, what's now properly known as the William Gillette play. And there's a play on the back of this notebook, in, you know, in hand, holograph. Uh, and the scene structure is the same. Uh, call it two-thirds of the characters are the same character names. But it's not the same play that we know of as the Gillette play. Uh, so I'm going to produce a facsimile of that. Wow, we've got quite a few things in the works here. That's great. Look forward to it. All right, I'm going to open it up for questions. We have about five minutes if people would like to ask questions. Melissa? Now that Holmes' work is copyright free, can there be a pirated copy? No. As I understand, as I understand the law, no. Yes. I have two questions, but they're related. Number one, um, your collection from all 
all the years like a black hole, nothing ever goes out but once you've collected it's yours. No, no, oh. no. And the second part of the question is your little bookshelf, is that still on your little bookshelf? Actually, not only not only is that little bookshelf not on the not those those books are, uh, but that whole bookcase is no longer <laughs> with us. Um, I have um, uh, I have gotten rid of uh, any number of books, and I've also uh, uh, deaccessioned uh, several sections which just didn't hold didn't continue. So, for example, Juvenalia. Um, and I, I had a f fair amount of that material and it just wasn't, I didn't find it, I didn't find it captivating. It's not necessary, not a reflection on that. There are plenty of people like, love, juvenile, period, let alone Sherlock Holmes juvenile. So all of that went. Um, I have, I have a couple of things which people might consider juvenilia. Well, for example. Uh, Hugh Lofting, um, the, uh, the guy who wrote about um, Dr. Doolittle, Talk to the Animals, he, wrote, he has a character, uh, Gub Gub the Icebox Detective. Well, I, I, still have the, I still have that particular book. So that, you, you might argue I didn't. John, do you have another question? All right, Glenn. I was fascinated by the, that alternative of the Sherlock Holmes play. I know that the late uh, Neku Tekken was going to transcribe it. Do you know, was he able to finish that? Oh yeah, he absolutely did. Okay. This is this is uh, this is a, gr a a great great example of the generosity of, of you know, collectors I've known. There's a, a no longer with us, recently passed away, Neku Tekken, and. Uh, uh, the the number of very scholarly, tremendous uh, in England they're called Homesians, not Sherlockians. Uh, tremendously knowledgeable, generous Homesian. Uh, I I I couldn't even tell you how many books, chapbooks, essays he's written or edited about Sherlock. And um, we we actually struck up a little bit more of a than a casual. Uh, as fellow travels in a casual friendship, oh, ten years ago, Kath, he had a he had a an aged uh, great aunt, I think, who lived in the San Francisco area, and he had come to the states to settle the estate when she passed away, and he was a house guest, and again, we spent many evenings sipping whiskey and uh, actually uh, mostly talking about the Civil War. He's quite a Civil War scholar. Oh, sorry, <laughs> the War of Northern Aggression, as the as the Brits call it. And uh, but at any rate, um, so I was uh, I had mentioned in a conversation uh, we were talking about who know uh, this is uh, e an email over email, and I was whining about this uh, play. I was in the pro I had just started transcribing it. And uh, the handwriting was not great, and it was a little slow. And he said, send it to me. Send, why don't you send it to me? And I said, okay. So I made a scan of it, and I sent it to Nick. And uh, a week or two later, in my email, he had transcribed the whole play. There's a question over here. Yeah. Um, 
I venture to say that you're probably not the only collector in the room. I would expect that a good many of the people sitting here listening to you are also collectors. I know I'm one. And one of the things that's so much fun about collecting is that just that little thrill, that charge you feel when you find something that goes into the collection. So my question to you is, do you still feel it as strongly as you did when you started collecting? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, even even with the um, uh, lesser items, I'll t let me actually only slightly. Do I have time for one another an one anecdote? Yes. This is about Marv Epstein. Uh, I was just beginning, and uh, I had I had found at a in a bookstore a, um, uh, a softbound. Looks like a softbound book, but it was really it was it was called the Pocket Magazine, and this was a this was a you know dime novel, but, but but it was upscale. You know they had real stories in it. It wasn't it wasn't one of those you know penny offals or what that sort of thing, and it it had a Sherlock Holmes pastiche in it, and this was uh, a very sophisticated piece for me at that point, and I I mentioned it to uh, uh, Marv. And he said, I've been looking for that book for years. And I said, well, why don't we trade? And uh, he traded me a very nice Starrett book. <laughs> and I think it was... And the it, Unique Hamlet? No, it wasn't, no, wasn't, wasn't the Unique Hamlet. Although I did get my first Unique Hamlet from Marv when he sold his collection. But, but anyway, we made a trade. And even with the you know the benefit and wisdom of, of you know, 40 plus years of collecting, it was, it was absolutely... A great trade, you know, dollars and cents. It made sense. What I got certainly fit my collection. What I gave Marv, what I traded to Marvin. Anyway, two or three weeks later, a package shows up at my house, and there's a there's a book in it, a note from Marvin says, "I don't feel right about that collection. You should have this book too." And then four or five or six months later, another box shows up. He says, "I still don't feel about right about." It. And I promise you, it was perfect from from the start. Wow, that's pretty good. Tim, do you want to say something? I just want to say thank you um, for a delightful conversation uh, to both Dick and Glenn. Also to my dean, it's unusual to have a dean of libraries who's willing to go around the room and take questions. <laughs> so thank you, Lisa, for, for pitching in in that way. Um, join me again in uh, thanking uh, these two very special people. And now I invite all of you very special people. Um, there are refreshments out in the atrium. Um, please also take the opportunity, if you haven't already, to spend some time with 221 objects, not only in this gallery on this floor, but also uh, one floor down in the wall and center, you'll find uh, the second portion of, of the exhibit. So again, thank you for coming this evening on a, a night that scared many, um, but we're glad you're here and enjoy the rest of your time.